Book One, Chapter Four of The World's Desire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Cushney. The World's Desire by H. Ryder Haggard. Book One, Chapter Four The Blood Red Sea. A hard fight it had been, and a long, and the wanderer was weary. He took the tiller of the ship in his hand, and steered for the south and for the noonday sun, which was now at his highest in the heavens. But suddenly the bright light of the sky was darkened, and the air was filled with the rush and the murmur and the winnowing of innumerable wings. It was as if all the birds that have their homes and seek their food in the great salt marsh of Caister had risen from the south and had flown over sea in one hour, for the heaven was darkened with their flight and loud with the call of cranes and the whistling cry of the wild ducks. So dark was the thick mass of flying fowl that a flight of swans shone snowy against the black cloud of their wings. At the view of them, the wanderer caught his bow eagerly into his hand, and set an arrow on the string, and, taking a careful aim at the white wedge of birds, he shot a wild swan through the breast as it swept high over the mast. Then, with all the speed of its rush, the wild white swan flashed down like lightning into the sea behind the ship. The wanderer watched its fall, when, lo! The water where the dead swan fell splashed up as red as blood and all a foam. The long silver wings and snowy plumage floated on the surface flecked with blood-red stains, and the wanderer marveled as he bent over the bulwarks and gazed steadily upon the sea. Then he saw that the wide sea round the ship was covered, as far as the eye could reach, as it were with a blood-red scum. Hither and thither the red stain was tossed like foam, yet beneath, where the deep wave divided, the wanderer saw that the streams of the sea were gray and green below the crimson dye. As he watched he saw too that the red froth was drifted always onward from the south and from the mouth of the river of Egypt, for behind the wake of the ship it was most red of all, though he had not marked it when the battle raged. But in front the color grew thin, as if the stain that the river washed down was all but spent. In his heart the wanderer thought, as any man must have deemed, that on the banks of the river of Egypt there had been some battle of great nations, and that the war-god had raged furiously, wherefore the holy river as it ran forth stained all the sacred sea. Where war was, there was his home, no other home had he now and all the more eagerly he steered right on to see what the gods would send him. The flight of birds was over and past. It was two hours after noon. The light was high in the heaven when, as he gazed, another shadow fell on him, for the sun in mid-heaven grew small and red as blood. Slowly a mist rose up over it from the south, a mist that was thin but as black as night. Beyond, to the southward, there was a bank of cloud like a mountain wall, steep and polished and black, tipped along the ragged crest with fire, and opening ever and again with flashes of intolerable splendor, 
while the bases were scrawled over with lightning like a written scroll. Never had the wanderer, in all his voyaging on the sea, and on the great river Oceanus that girdles the earth, and severs the dead from the living men, never had he beheld such a darkness. Presently he came as it were within the jaws of it, dark as a wolf's mouth, so dark that he might not see the corpses on the deck, nor the mast, nor the dead man swinging from the yard, nor the captain of the Phoenicians who groaned aloud below, praying to his gods. But in the wake of the ship there was one break of clear blue sky on the horizon, in which the little isle where he had slain the Sidonians might be discerned far off, as bright and white as ivory. Now, though he knew it not, the gates of his own world were closing behind the wanderer forever. To the north, whence he came, lay the clear sky, and the sunny capes and isles, and the airy mountains of the Argive lands, white with the temples of familiar gods. But in the face of him, to the south, whither he went, was a cloud of darkness and a land of darkness itself. There were things to befall more marvelous than are told in any tale. There was to be a war of the peoples and of the gods, the true gods and the false, and there he should find the last embraces of love, the false love and the true. Foreboding somewhat of the perils that lay in front, the wanderer was tempted to shift his course and sail back to the sunlight. But he was one that had never turned his hand from the plow, nor his foot from the path, and he thought that now his path was foreordained. So he lashed the tiller with a rope, and groped his way with his hands along the deck till he reached the altar of the dwarf gods, where the embers of the sacrifice were still glowing faintly. Then, with his sword, he cut some spear shafts and broken arrows into white chips, and with them he filled a little brazier, and taking the seed of fire from the altar, set light to it from beneath. Presently the wood blazed up through the noonday night, and the fire flickered and flared on the faces of the dead men that lay about the deck, rolling to larboard and to starboard, as the vessel lurched, and the flame shone red on the golden armor of the wanderer. Of all his voyages, this was the strangest seafaring, he cruising alone with a company of the dead, deep into a darkness without measure or bound, to a land that might not be descried. Strange gusts of sudden wind blew him hither and thither. The breeze would rise in a moment from any quarter, and die as suddenly as it rose, and another wind would chase it over the chopping seas. He knew not if he sailed south or north, he knew not how time passed, for there was no sight of the sun. It was night without a dawn. Yet his heart was glad, as if he had been a boy again, for the old sorrows were forgotten, so potent was the draught of the chalice of the goddess, and so keen was the delight of battle. Endure, my heart, he cried, as often he had cried before. A worse thing than this thou hast endured. And he caught up a lyre of the dead Sidonians, and sang. Though the light of the sun be hidden, though his race be run, Though we sail in a sea forbidden to the golden sun, Though we wander alone, unknowing, O oh heart of mine, The path of the strange sea-going of the blood-red brine, Yet endure we shall not be shaken, 
by things worse than these. We have scaped when our friends were taken on the unsailed seas. Worse deaths we have faced and fled from in the Cyclops' den, when the floor of his cave ran red from the blood of men. Worse griefs we have known undaunted, worse fates have fled, when the isle that our long love haunted lay waste and dead. So he was chanting when he descried, faint and far off, a red glow cast up along the darkness like sunset on the sky of the underworld. For this light he steered, and soon he saw two tall pillars of flame blazing beside each other, with a narrow space of night between them. He helmed the ship toward these, and when he came near them they were like two mighty mountains of wood burning far into heaven, and each was lofty as the pyre that blazes over men slain in some red war, and each pile roared and flared above a steep crag of smooth black basalt, and between the burning mounds of fire lay the flame-flecked water of a haven. The ship neared the haven, and the wanderer saw, moving like fireflies through the night, the lanterns in the prows of boats, and from one of the boats a sailor hailed him in the speech of the people of Egypt, asking him if he desired a pilot. Yea, he shouted. The boat drew near, and the pilot came aboard, a torch in his hand. But when his eyes fell on the dead men in the ship, and the horror hanging from the yard, and the captain bound to the iron bar, and above all, on the golden armor of the hero, and on the spear-point fast in his helm, and on his terrible face, he shrank back in dread, as if the god Osiris himself in the ship of death had reached the harbor. But the wanderer bade him have no fear, telling him that he came with much wealth and with a great gift for the pharaoh. The pilot, therefore, plucked up heart, and took the helm, and between the two great hills of blazing fire the vessel glided into the smooth waters of the river of Egypt, the flames glittering on the wanderer's mail as he stood by the mast and chanted the song of the bow. Then, by the counsel of the pilot, the vessel was steered up the river toward the temple of Heracles in Tanis, where there is a sanctuary for strangers, and where no man may harm them. But first, the dead Sidonians were cast overboard into the great river, for the dead bodies of men are an abomination to the Egyptians. And as each body struck the water, the wanderer saw a hateful sight, for the face of the river was lashed into foam by the sudden leaping and rushing of huge four-footed fish, or so the wanderer deemed them. The sound of the heavy plunging of the great water-beasts as they darted forth on the prey smiting at each other with their tails, and the gnashing of their jaws when they bit too eagerly and only harmed the air, and the leap of a greedy sharp snout from the waves, even before the dead man cast from the ship had quite touched the water. These things were horrible to see and hear through the blackness and by the firelight. A river of death, it seemed, haunted by the horrors that are said to prey upon the souls and bodies of the dead. For the first time the heart of the wanderer died within him, at the horror of the darkness and of this dread river and of the water-beasts that dwelt within it. Then he remembered how the birds had fled in terror from this place, 
and he bethought him of the blood-red sea. When the dead men were all cast overboard and the river was once more still, the wanderer spoke, sick at heart, and inquired of the pilot why the sea had run so red, and whether war was in the land, and why there was night all over that country. The fellow answered that there was no war but peace, yet the land was strangely plagued with frogs and locusts and lice in all their coasts, the sacred river Sahor running red for three whole days, and now, at last for this the third day, darkness all over the world. But as to the cause of these curses, the pilot knew nothing, being a plain man. Only the story went among the people that the gods were angry with Chem, as they call Egypt, which indeed was easy to see, for those things could only come from the gods. But why they were angered the pilot knew not. Still it was commonly thought that the divine Hathor, the goddess of love, was wroth because of the worship given in Tanis to the one they called the strange Hathor, a goddess or a woman of wonderful beauty whose temple was in Tanis. Concerning her, the pilot said that many years ago, some thirty years, she had first appeared in the country, coming none knew whence, and had been worshipped in Tanis, and had again departed as mysteriously as she came. But now she had once more chosen to appear visible to men, strangely, and to dwell in her temple, and the men who beheld her could do nothing but worship her for her beauty. Whether she was a mortal woman or a goddess the pilot did not know, only he thought that she who dwells in Atarachus, Hathor of Chem, the queen of love, was angry with the strange Hathor, and had sent the darkness and the plagues to punish them who worshipped her. The people of the seaboard also murmured that it would be well to pray the strange Hathor to depart out of their coasts if she were a goddess, and if she were a woman to stone her with stones. But the people of Tanis vowed that they would rather die, one and all, than do aught but adore the incomparable beauty of their strange goddess. Others again held that two wizards, leaders of certain slaves of a strange race, wanderers from the desert, settled in Tanis, whom they called the Opera, caused all these sorrows by art magic. As if, forsooth, said the pilot, those barbarian slaves were more powerful than all the priests of Egypt. But for his part the pilot knew nothing, only that if the divine Hathor were angry with the people of Tanis, it was hard that she must plague all the land of Chem. So the pilot murmured, and his tale was none of the shortest. But even as he spoke, the darkness grew less dark, and the cloud lifted a little, so that the shores of the river might be seen in a green light like the light of Hades, and presently the night was rolled up like a veil, and it was living noonday in the land of Chem. Then all the noise of life broke forth in one moment, the kine lowing, the wind swaying in the feathery palms, the fish splashing in the stream, men crying to each other from the river banks, and the voice of multitudes of people in every red temple praising Ra, their great god, whose dwelling is the sun. The wanderer, too, praised his own gods, and gave thanks to Apollo, and to Helios Hyperion, and to Aphrodite. And in the end the pilot brought the ship to the quay of a great city, and there a crew of oarsmen was hired, and they sped rejoicing in the sunlight, through a canal dug by the hands of men, to Tanis and the sanctuary of Heracles, the safety of strangers. 
There the ship was moored. There the wanderer rested, having a good welcome from the shaven priests of the temple. End of Book One, Chapter Four Recording by Peter Cushney.